Hello, I'm John Wilson. Welcome to the second in a series of podcasts by Arts Council England, looking at six key digital topics which have been brought to light by the Digital R&D Fund for the Arts. That's a £7 million investment in digital projects across the arts sector, delivered by the Arts Council, Nesta, and the Arts and Humanities Research Council in partnership. This second programme is all about mobile and gaming technology and how these can be used to reach and engage audiences in the arts. In this programme, we'll be exploring mobile strategy from the Smithsonian Institution. We're kind of an example of one of those museums that's leapfrogging a bit, going from zero to trying to work kind of at the leading edge of mobile very quickly. A new approach mixing online gaming and immersive theatre. It looks a little bit like a duck, if we're honest, when it's on. It's got like a beak which comes down to a point. It's made of plastic and it sort of sits just on the front of your face. The latest in app technology. It's not linear. You can have the app anywhere. And even if you're not in London, you can just explore the app and still see all of the content. And location-based technology. They could be GPS-enabled maps and they might include content about a particular landmark that you'll see when the app realises that you're in a particular spot that you're on. And we're finding that they're a real departure for us from our gallery and traditional setting. But first to my guests on the programme today, joining me in the studio are Joe Reed, Creative Director at Calvium, the mobile agency that created App Furnace. That's a mobile app development tool. Martha Henson is the multimedia producer for the Welcome Collection in London. And Sergio Folletti is Director at mobile solutions agency Future Platforms. Welcome to you all. First, let's introduce yourselves. Joe, first of all, App Furnace, we mentioned there. That's almost a DIY app tool, isn't it? People make their own apps and do it far exactly. cheaper. Exactly. And going, what we recognised right. is that what you needed was the ability for people to have tools that they could use without having to have engineers and programmers in the loop too much. Martha Henson, multimedia producer at the Welcome Collection. Mm-hmm. The Welcome has actually been deeply involved in digital technology for a while now, particularly in the gaming area. Yeah, we have over the last year actually developed a broadcasting gaming strategy, actively looking at opportunities to fund exciting gaming that kind of involves biomedical science in some way. Sergio, what is Future Platforms? We are an application developer, so we have been building mobile applications for the last 10 years, so a long time before the iPhone came along. Mm. Quite a lot of R&D projects for device manufacturers just to look at what is coming up next. I'd like to start on the subject of the use of mobile technologies as a tool within the arts. We spoke with Nancy Proctor, who's head of mobile strategy and initiatives at the Smithsonian Institution in Washington, D.C. They're pretty advanced in terms of embedding mobile strategy. They've even published it as a wiki. She told us how they're connecting with audiences. We've really written our mobile strategy to reflect the traditions of the institution, but we also try to use the two-way and multi-way communication capability of these network devices that are, are really ubiquitous now to enable us to recruit the world to help us with our work. So we're really trying to use mobile to figuratively as well as literally put the Smithsonian in the hands of the people and have them become 
partners and stakeholders in our work and in our success. So crowdsourcing is a big part of our strategic mobile projects and social media in general. Indeed, I, I tend to think of, of mobile as, to a very large extent, a social media platform, and that should characterize the nature of the experience. But what exactly do we mean by mobile technology? Let's start off with a few definitions. Joe Reed, are we talking primarily about handheld devices? Well, I think mobility for me is more of a design state of mind, a user experience, and the way that you might access those things. So I think it's like thinking about it as saying, okay, what does it mean to be mobile rather than it's just about the phone? But visitors to art centres are still using mobile devices in different ways. They're either looking at apps or they're looking at sites. Give us a sense of the pros and cons. Have you looked at this at the Welcome Collection, Martha? Well, we've developed an in-gallery audio guide which is using Android technology, so we're actually providing those devices to people. We haven't developed anything that's asking people to download something onto their own device yet. Here's a response. There was a comment at the recent Mobile Culture Conference on the 17th of July. Somebody on Twitter pointed out that an average app costs $50,000 to produce but makes $6,000. Is that right, Joe? It depends how you're measuring return. So there are different classes of what you have an app for. I think if people think of the iconical Angry Birds type of app where you're getting revenue from the app as a game, mm. then you might look at that as a straight numbers game. How much did it take to develop the game and what am I going to get in sales from the game? Or perhaps revenue from after sales for something as successful as that kind of hero game. But I think when you're talking about the art sector, then ways of measuring return are not necessarily monetary from the app itself. You could almost think about it as an extra exhibit in your museum. I mean, mm. you know, how much effort do you put into putting something else on for your visitors that then engages them with your site, your brand, the extension of your brand over the world and so on. And there, I think it's harder to get that tangible return on investments. Sergio, what about the purchasing opportunities for mobile devices? And I'm thinking particularly of, of buying tickets with your phone. Mobile is actually been using as a uh, transactional tool for a long time. So we will all remember the premium SMSs, or reverse charging SMSs, you know, back when ringtones and things like those. More in general, Apple and app stores are allowing in-app purchases, which is effectively another way of allowing micropayments within mobile and touching on near field communications. So the NFC, a bit similar to what the Oyster card is using, those are also starting to come into mobile. So Barclays have recently launched a service that allows you to sort of tap and pay. As NFC, as a technology rolls out onto more and more devices, you will have larger players like Google who will be providing wallets and therefore ways of paying using your mobile phone. But it's important what Joe said there, isn't it, Sergio, that within the art sector, people shouldn't necessarily be looking to an app to make money, that there's not necessarily a revenue stream there, but value has a different meaning. Maybe to draw a bit of a parallel to it, we built the applications for the Glastonbury Festival last year. So related in the sense that it is a live event and it is effectively a guide to an experience that you're going to have at a particular event. Those apps were provided for free. They were sponsored by um, Orange. So again, going back to the return on investment, the return wasn't measured on sales because there weren't any. Sure, It was far more about how many people are going to install it. It was over 100,000. 
how many people are going to comment positively about it and create a sort of a positive association with Orange. It speaks to what you were saying earlier about it should come from the user behaviour and what you actually want to achieve from it. And for us, part of what we do that's really important is the evaluation of projects. And for that, you need to be really clear about what your objectives were in the first place. And as you're developing it, making sure that you're developing it correctly for the user, for the user behaviour, but also afterwards testing that it has met those objectives. Um, and I think that's really important. And there's kind of been that gold rush and people weren't really thinking clearly about what they wanted to get out of it. They just wanted to have an app immediately, something shiny. I'm going to give you some figures here because here's a report which suggests that there is a growing demand for this sort of technology. The Ofcom's Communications Market Report 2012. 40% of smartphone users say their smartphone is more important for accessing the internet than any other device. Smartphone ownership amongst adults in the UK is up from 27% to 39% in the last year. Tablet ownership in the UK jumped from 2% to 11% in the last 12 months. Very important stats. If I can maybe add another one which is uh, very dear to me, it is around the download numbers in terms of just applications. The record was over the uh, Christmas period in 2011, so last year, where there were 170 million downloads per day of applications, which I think is just a phenomenal indication of the sort of volume of interest there is out there. Well, let's look at a specific example. One project that has been designed with the future in mind is a digital R&D funded app produced by the Exhibition Road Cultural Group celebrating Charles Dickens' life in London. The Dickens app for iPhone allows you to explore Dickens' London through characters from his novels, each representing a different aspect of Victorian London. Paul Cutts, chief executive of the Exhibition Road Cultural Group, explains what users can get out of it. So what you do is you select one of those characters, say Samuel Pickwick, and you get a little pop-up map of London with different pins representing the different parts of the city that have an association with Dickens. So you can choose any number of those destinations. It's not linear. You can sort of have the app anywhere. And even if you're not in London, you can just explore the app and still see all of the content. But if you are physically near a location, you can read a background about the place and see usually an historical image representing what the place looked like in Dickens' own time. So, for instance, if you chose Artful Dodger and wanted to find out more about childhood, you might land on Warren's Backing Factory, which is where Dickens, as a 12-year-old, was sent to work at Boot Polish Factory. And it was one of the most humiliating experiences of his life. And, and the entry for that explains a little about what that experience was like for Dickens and also how it's been represented in his fiction. He basically used the Warren's Blacking Factory as a symbol of all that was wrong with Victorian London and child poverty and working conditions. So what we've tried to do is make the app chime with issues that are still relevant today, child exploitation, women's rights, the disadvantages that people still feel in contemporary London. And we've tried to relate that back to Dickens' own time. So once you visit a destination, you can mark it as a favourite on the app. You can mark it as visited. It gives you a map and directions from where you are. You can visit its website if it's a cultural organisation. It gives you a telephone number. You can even email it. And we've also included a link to Wikipedia. So should you want to find out more, you can go exploring elsewhere. So which platforms should an arts organisation choose to use? These apps can be expensive to develop. Joe, um, mobile platforms, Android versus Apple versus Microsoft, there's a lot of choice out there, isn't there? There is. And I think part of the things the organisation needs to take on board is, again, being very clear about the goals 
who they're trying to reach and for what purpose. So you've always got a trade-off between breadth of reach and depth of the experience. So if you're going for depth of experience, if it's very important to you that you want to have a very high-end classy app, that would lead you towards a native development environment. If actually your goals are more like the Glastonbury or you know, you're know you going for breadth and marketing and everything else, then you've got to ask yourself, okay, should I perhaps adopt a hybrid approach and go for web technologies, HTML5 and cross-platform development? Do I need an app at all, actually? Mm. Is a mobile website a better way of delivering? And Sergio, that's the advice that you give to your clients, is it that you have to set very clear objectives rather than just experimenting with the new technology and seeing what happens? I think there is obviously a distinction between commercial organisations where they are driving ultimately for revenue and cultural organisations where accessibility and availability are part of the mandate. So if you're looking at the landscape purely commercially, the choice tends to be fairly straightforward. Apple is the dominating player at the moment. Android will be your probable second step Obviously, when it comes to cultural organizations or organizations like the BBC, where you have a mandate to actually offer a similar service to your entire audience, then you are almost forced to slightly pare down the experience across the board or to invest more in order to cover every single person out there. Martha, what was the approach at the Welcome Collection then, when you're having visitors coming in, engaging with collections and maybe taking what they've learned away with them? Do you focus on one particular platform? We're actually working on something which is a location-based treasure hunt, which naturally happens out and about. It happens around the streets of London. And for that, if we'd had all of our wishes at the beginning and as much budget as we've liked, I would have loved to do that on every possible platform. As it was, it was a very sort of experimental project and we're trialling it on iOS first, simply because the technology available was already there for iOS. So developing it separately for Android would have been a huge expense, although I still hope that we will do at some point. We're also working on another project, which is more on the trust side of things, which will be educational. Now for that, that's a very different audience and a very clear audience. So our first task with that is to find out if we're aiming it at teachers, exactly how they're using it, which platforms they're using. There are iPads in school for example, but not hugely widespread. Looking ahead, where is mobile technology taking us next? The Smithsonian Institution's Nancy Proctor again. Well, I think we're going to see a continuation of a trend that's already very observable, which is a shift of web traffic from large screen e-mobile platforms to mobile devices. So we're already up above 10% of most museum online traffic is coming from mobile devices. And by 2014, the majority of internet traffic will be coming from mobile devices. And so that's going to change the nature of our content design and our asset management, centralized content management and web services that tailor the content and the display of that content to different size devices on the fly are going to be critical. And I think we're entering the era of the amateur, and I mean it in the French sense, the lover, the lover of things, the amateur who is so passionate and so committed. These are the people who built Wikipedia, started in 2005. That kind of phenomenon, I think, will characterize this next era. Gaming can also provide opportunities to reach and engage audiences using technology. But what happens when you mix that with immersive theatre? Punch Drunk, the London-based immersive theatre company, take disused spaces, turn them into environments where the audience has become an element of the performance, often with the aid of masks. 
Punch Drunk originally staged Sleep No More, their version of Macbeth, in a disused primary school in South London. The production then moved to another disused school in Boston in the States and then on to New York, where it currently plays in a 100,000-square-foot warehouse. Punch Drunk hooked up with technologists at the famous MIT Media Lab in Boston for their digital R&D pilot project. To ask the question, can a remote user have the same experience as an on-site audience member? To answer this, MIT introduced gaming technology into the performance through portals in which an online audience member was partnered with an audience member at the venue. Peter Higgin, Punch Drunk's Enrichment Director in London, and Todd Macover from MIT in Boston, along with some of the Media Lab students involved in the project, explain how it worked. What our work's all about is not telling you too much. And there's a very interesting line to tread between how much you tell an audience and how that affects or impacts their experience. The set, it's like if you walked into a shop, for example, and it was a sweet shop, you can eat the sweets. So the space tells as much of a story as anything else, and the space is as important as the performance. Everything is real. You're encouraged to touch the artifacts, you're encouraged to explore, you're encouraged to read and to discover. So there's massive levels of detail within the show. The underlying idea was, would it be possible for people who weren't physically at the show to be able to experience it? One reason was simply to increase the number of people who could have some experience of sleep no more if they couldn't get to New York. So the process was first to figure out what the restrictions are for the performance. For example, Punch Drunk wanted to keep all the technology that on-site people are going to wear invisible from the rest of the audience member in the show. From that, looking at different technology that's available to us right now and then try them out and what works the best and so forth. They installed microphones around the space so that you could listen into one-on-ones which were important within the narrative. They created a poltergeist kind of book which flipped off a bookshelf and revealed a book which was important to your mission. A book drops off a shelf as soon as the chosen audience member walks past it and that's only for them and other audience members this wouldn't happen. All the places where you could talk for the portals were places that were carefully cordoned off from the rest of the show but obviously you're not supposed to talk in the rest of the show so it's this interesting like thought about like how special am I which is a very gamey thing to do boundary testing. Once you feel special to figure out how special you are. One of the on-site players who knows games actually went up to like some of the black masks who blocked off particular boundaries and said, I'm Kevin, can I come through? And the black mask said no, but you know, it's like one of those things where once you're special, you do, I mean, try and figure out how special you are. One of the really fantastic performative pieces was the creation of a Ouija board, which essentially was the start of the piece that connected these two participants together. So if you imagine the online person was like a spirit, lost in the spirit world, they could hear and see a medium sat around a Ouija board with their real world participant. The medium would ask, what is your name? At home you would type, my name is Peter. And then the planchette on the Ouija board would move to P-E-T-E-R. A lot of the initial conceptions of the experience were gamey. It wasn't a game, it was an experience. But I think people, as soon as you put something in front of them on a computer like that, it's hard to get away from that notion of game. You don't want to have this sort of extremely tactical 
thing where it feels like you can win or lose or where your decisions can really affect things because you don't want to give people the sense that they can win or lose sleep no more. <laughs> I felt really it was like this sort of synthesis of technology and performance and importantly to try and create this very amazing I suppose experience and impactful experience for, for the audience. Well, let's get some responses to what we heard there. The clue is in the word immersive theatre. It's not like about breaking the fourth wall of the theatre. You are part of the performance. You wander around with the characters. So the researchers at MIT asked the question, can a remote user have the same experience as an on-site audience member? Um, brings to mind the phrase, ask a silly question. How can, it's, it's impossible, isn't it, Joe? Oh, no, I, and there have been precedents before. I, I mean, I just love Punch Drunk. We know that there are rich social medium around things that we're familiar with as technologists, you know, blogs and so on, forums, you know, classically, there are a few people who actually engage, but many more people who watch. And so there's always been this fascinating dynamic. But you're not going to have the, the same experience. I mean, you, you, you don't you, you, try you to have... No, but it's, it doesn't mean it's not a valid experience. No, it's worth, it's, searching, it's yes. worth trying, isn't it? Yes. Absolutely. I think there are a couple of other points there. I mean... One to me is that the remote experience is actually quite familiar to a section of the audience because it is very similar to the experience of online gaming. So if you're thinking of sort of first-person games, they are extremely engaging and they are extremely familiar to a certain audience. Well, you could be playing with somebody else who's sitting in in their bedroom 3,000 miles away. Exactly. So the the idea that the world that you are exploring and playing in is actually a real one that is being played by Punchrunk rather than being a completely virtual world is not such a massive departure from what people are already used to. Imagine that there will be a lot of people listening to this, people who run art centres or galleries or cultural institutions who think this all sounds very exciting, but is it going to help grow new audiences? Is it going to get people through the door or even people engaging with what we do here remotely? Martha, I presume that's one of the ideas that you're hoping to, to see through at the Welcome, that you can engage particularly younger audiences. Not necessarily younger audiences, but when we started thinking about gaming and the the games that we commissioned through Welcome Collection, one of our prime objectives with that was to reach a new audience. And sort of starting from that point, games is an obvious way of doing it because there is a huge audience for games and particularly the sort of casual games that we were interested. People go to portals like Congregate, Newgrounds, Armour, Miniclip, all those kinds of places, and they have tens of thousands of regular users who are there already just waiting to play games. So by putting our games that we made with a very experienced games company who knew a lot about making games really fun, uh, as well as incorporating elements of kind of historical fact or science. And when we put it in those spaces, rather than expecting them to come to our site, we put it in those spaces where they were, and they were phenomenally successful. Which takes us very neatly on to thinking about how arts and cultural venues can use mobile technology to enhance visitors' experiences. Claire Cooper-Hammond and Jessica Taylor are from Antenna International, a leading provider of experiential content for the heritage sector. It's very important that any of the kind of digital media approach is fully integrated to what the institution's doing. So it may be that they identify a target audience or a segment out there that is never going to visit London and is not necessarily going to have the opportunity of standing in front of an amazing artwork, for example, here in this collection. But they still want to engage 
with that individual and give them a really good experience, the best experience you can have remotely. Certainly we see with our clients, it is that integrated approach. It's certainly not, you can have this museum experience virtually. I mean, I don't think any of us have found a particularly successful virtual exhibition. They're an interesting experience, but it's never the same thing as actually being in the gallery and connecting with the object or the work. It's not about replacing an experience. It's about offering the opportunity to somebody remotely to experience and engage with the exhibition, but not to replace the in-gallery experience. Sergio, start us off with some ideas about how institutions can use technology on location to enhance the experience. I think that the, the obvious uh, starting point where people have been going to have been around tagging objects within exhibitions. So the current technologies, I would say, personally, I find them extremely cumbersome. So I'm thinking of uh, 2D barcodes that you can access information about the object that you're looking at. In reality, I haven't really seen any application of that that made me think, yes, as a user, as a normal person, I would use it every day or every single time I visit an exhibition. The uh, new technologies that are coming up now, so I'm referring more to near-field communications, a bit similar to what the Oyster card is using, feel to me like the right starting point. And what, what happens? How do you use that? What they will allow you to do will be either with an application or without even an application running on the phone, you will be able to tap on an object, for example, in an exhibition space and get immediate access to data, extra data about that particular object. Joe Reed. Very often you hear about parents dragging kids along unwillingly to galleries. Are there ways of keeping the family together using technology to engage the kids better, do you think? A couple of years ago, well, in fact, four years was the original trial. We worked with uh, the Tower of London, Historic Royal Palaces, on their escape from the Tower prisoner game, which we've developed now as an app. And there we ran user trials with family groups because they particularly wanted to go for that demographic. The kind of disengaged teenager who comes with the family isn't really turned on by a standard audio tour and wants to have more kind of gamification things. So again, we use GPS and so on so that you can go hear a prisoner's plea, help them escape in an authentic way that they did. And from the palace's point of view, it meant that you could send visitors to the less traversed areas of the tower. So, you know, you didn't go to the jewel house and everything else. You went to some of the lesser visited towers. And the nice thing about that is from their point of view that they knew even though it's phenomenally successful, the average visit to the tower, even though the tickets are quite expensive, is about two hours. On the trials that we ran, the children who were engaged with the game in early prototypes when we were testing it just handed it out and they had an hour and a half's limit. They frequently said that well, they haven't got long enough, they wanted to go back and rescue more and, and so on. So and even though education wasn't an overt goal for that game, they were coming back spontaneously recounting the prisoners that they had, talking about where they'd went to and so on. So I believe that was a richer engagement with the actual place than a kind of superficial knowledge about what was going on on a trip through the jewel house. Well, let's move on the debate by introducing another concept, that of augmented reality. Orasma is a visual browser that merges the physical world with the virtual. We have a technology which uses very, very advanced image recognition technology to look at things in the real world through your smartphone or your iPad, much in the same way that a human being would. Kate Mason runs Orasma's retail agency and arts partnerships, and she talks about the added value of this type of technology in exhibition spaces. The device can recognise the thing it sees and connect it to something else. It could be video content, it could be a live Twitter feed. 
So we're looking now at charming portrait of Robbie Burns, which is something we worked on with Dewar's Whiskey for Burns Night. It's an image in a gallery up in Scotland. And what I'm going to do now is open up Orasma on my iPad, and then I'm holding up the iPad to this gorgeous picture of Robbie Burns. And as you do so, Orasma recognises the image and overlays onto it the moving image of, of a modern-day Robbie Burns. Joe Reid, have you looked at this sort of this sort of technology? Oh, yeah, yeah. I must confess I, I'm a little... Um, Sceptical. Well, I, I like fireworks as well. You know, if you want to spend 100k on fireworks, that would be good to do. It kind of, to me, fits at the moment into that category. I don't think it's for the... It's not quite ready for the masses yet. It's still, I think, in the realm of more specialist stuff and, and developing good content for that, I think, is key. And until the authoring processes get a bit better, I think it still just takes a bit too long to do something quite small. And the kind of technologies I'm more excited about for it's kind of in gallery space, we've done a lot of works with indoor location. As I say, our platform already works really easily and seamlessly with GPS. That's kind of a done deal because it's an available technology for everybody. But there isn't yet a cost-effective indoor positioning systems available for, for all things. Now, you know, there's the Google location system and everything else. We've done prototypes with Bristol Old Vic and, and we've used a very high-end system called Ubisense where they were great to lend us a research kit. And that's got good commercial properties and it's very exciting, but it's far too expensive for a kind of an arts organisation. One of the current projects we're kind of researching at the moment is looking at a Wi-Fi-based thing. And I think, again, those are the kind of things I'm thinking personally are more exciting because once you unlock a seamless outdoor to indoor experience mm. where you can just walk and listen to things. For me, that rocks my boat or whatever the expression is a little <laughs> bit more. <laughs> Martha, I presume these are the questions you have to that you have to consider all the time at the Wellcome Trust. You're playing a juggling act, aren't you? H- how much do you have to be at the cutting edge of technology? How much do you have to engage your viewers, your listeners and your patrons with technological ideas? And how much do you have to spend? And that's always the problem, isn't it? It is. I mean, I don't think anyone comes to us expecting it to be like Launchpad in the Science Museum or something along those lines. But that said, you know, there are things that technologies can do for us that do work for what we're trying to achieve. And as I said before, gaming in particular was something that we thought would enable that kind of deeper engagement, which is what we're interested in. So it's not about, you know, being in the gaming space because we feel we ought to and that's where the cutting right, edge is. Okay. It's about what it can do for us. Well, we've been hearing about some really exciting innovations and opportunities and possibilities over the course of this programme. I'm going to ask my guests here in the studio to do a bit of crystal ball gazing, to look into the future. And I'm going to get you going by uh, talking about something I read on the way to the studio about Google's new project, Project Glass, they're describing it as. They say it's going to be on release to the public by 2014. In the future, we're all going to be augmenting our own realities by walking around in goggles, Sergio. (laughs) Can you see that happening? Well, if Google are doing it, I can probably see it happen. But I I, I will go back to maybe the, the idea of technology here. I think the last few decades with a PC have educated us of thinking of technology as something that is all-absorbing and something that you have to sit at a desk and sort of stare at for minutes, if not hours. I think mobile is actually a very different kind of technology, and it is moving further and further away from that idea of a big screen and something that you have to pay attention to over time. And Martha, at Welcome, are you putting your money on new as-yet 
uninvented technology or are you just waiting for the next big thing to come along? No, we're not. But I do think what they've done with Project Glass is really interesting. Um, They've released it for pre-orders to developers first. They have just made the platform, but they're asking people to come up with ways of using it. And I think that could be uh, potentially quite an interesting way of doing things. So they're not suggesting usage. They've just provided a technology which is still in the process of being developed. But they might actually be too late. There's already people at MIT who are developing AR contact lenses. Keeping an eye on it, I don't think Welcome will be kind of diving into any of it for quite a while. I don't think anyone will be for quite a while. But so, Joe, if we're not going to be walking around with uh, with goggles all day long, I mean, just just wild guess here or informed guess, you know, which which direction could mobile technology be heading? Well, I'd like to see more of the technology being pushed into the environment. So now we're used to kind of being able to connect to the internet wherever we are in cities and it's getting better worldwide. But I've always liked the idea of the environment itself containing more of the smarts and your device then being able to lock in and access into it a little bit better. So I think more of this kind of infrastructural things so that you can do something. Funny enough, I mean, they talk about the internet of things a lot. I think some of those things are still have to have compelling use cases. The future is as yet unwritten, but you can be assured that somebody is scribbling away in a corner right at this very moment. Well, we'd very much like to hear from you on the subjects raised in this programme. Please do tweet us at hashtag ArtsDigital and we'll read some of the responses out on next month's programme. Many thanks to my guests, Joe Reed, Martha Henson and Sergio Folletti. The Digital R&D Fund for the Arts is open for applications until the 30th of December 2013. To find out more information or to apply, visit artsdigitalrnd.org.uk. You've been listening to a podcast from Arts Council England. Don't forget to share and bookmark these podcasts on the Arts Council iTunes channel or at the Arts Digital R&D website, artsdigitalrnd.org.uk.